Among the challenges that are facing the church today, uh, there are two that are identified in our text here. Uh, in Judges chapter 7, we'll spend most of our time in Judges 7, although we're going to begin in the last few verses of Judges chapter 6. The first challenge that this is going to address is the challenge that uh, in today's modern church, there is too much planning and not enough obeying. Too much planning and not enough obeying. You'll see all kinds of scandals that come out in terms of people's morality and all that in church leadership. And yet at the same time, you have this American propensity to plan to the nth degree. And so there's planning things down to the very last second of details. Um, you probably notice that we don't do that around here. <laughs> um, we don't even worry about what the pastor wears when he preaches uh, even though he sometimes looks like he's selling ice cream or fried chicken. <clears throat> um, the fact is that there needs to be a recovery of the authority of Scripture and a focus on Scripture more than planning. Now, don't get me wrong. There are all kinds of texts in the Bible that talk about the importance of planning. This is not one of those. And the issue the challenge that's facing the church today is one that's addressed here, too much planning and not enough obeying. The second challenge that this text will address is thinking that we are defeated. There is, of course, in our culture today, a movement away from Christian values, a movement away from the belief even in an infinite personal creator of the universe. But that does not mean that we as believers are defeated because God is not defeated. Now, we are defeated if we are depending upon ourselves. But God's cause is not and will not be defeated. In fact, this morning, if I were going to tell our boys and girls as we look at this story of Gideon, we're always glad to have the boys and girls through in the church for the summertime. It's such a great thing for me. I love it. Um, here's what you need to write down as the big theme today, boys and girls. God alone saves. God saves by powerful grace to create worshipers. God alone saves, and he saves by powerful grace to create worshipers. So today we're going to look at how God alone is the one who saves, and he does it by his powerful grace, and that powerful grace creates worship. Are you ready for that? Please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Judges chapter 6, we'll begin at verse 36. We will read through chapter 7, verse 8, and then I'll read some more as we go along through the message. Judges 6, verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so when he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. 
please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, and it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, with the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of the, those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Please be seated. First, let's look at God's grace to a fearful man. Gideon now has two tests that he's going to test God with this fleece, right? The first test, he's going to say, God, let the fleece be wet and everything around it be dry. And then the second test is, well, let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. Now, I want you to notice the ifs here in Gideon's statement in verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hand, if there's dew on the on the fleece alone. He's, he's doubting God's word. If you will save by my hand as you have said, God's already spoken to Gideon. So this thing of laying out a fleece to know God's will, just scrap that idea, okay? That is not here in this text. Gideon already knows God's will and he's wanting to test it. Gideon makes his test the measure of divine blessing. Then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. You see, Gideon is testing God. He knows that he's asking wrongly. Look at verse uh, um, 39. Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. He knows this is wrong. Let me speak. Let me test. And it was so. Here's what's amazing. Gideon is doing everything wrong here, and God is still so gracious that he gives what Gideon asks for, a confirmation of his will. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That is so powerful in terms of God's grace. May I suggest to you, do not use fleeces to try to find out God's will. They are actually expressions of doubt of God's known will, not an expression of finding out God's will. Um, 
There's all kinds of things that are wrong. Gideon had already had the angel of the Lord speak to him. He had already had a sign of that angel bringing down fire from heaven and consuming his sacrifice, and that angel of the Lord disappeared right in front of his eyes. He knows that he's doubting God's word. He knows what God wants him to do, and yet, and yet God is so patient with Gideon. And he answers with the fleeces. Such is the greatness of God's grace. He truly loves us. God's grace to a fearful man. One wonders why it is that Gideon has to go through all these things to kind of confirm it. And um, my guess is that his fears are so great. And if you meet up with things where your fears are overpowering you, just know that God's powerful grace is going to be poured out in your life. Next, there's God's plan to eliminate fear. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Jeroboam, we know that that's Gideon's other name from uh, last Sunday's message. And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. So I'll show you a map here that shows here's the hill of Moray, and the people of Midian are based right at the base of that hill. And in the green here is where Gideon is encamped. And there's this huge Jezreel Valley, which is where Deborah and Barak defeated the king of Hazor and his general Sisera in chapters four and five. And then there's, it's kind of like an arrow. Here's the shaft of the arrow, and then here's the point of the arrow coming down here, this, uh, this valley. And so there's an escape route that, it, that the Midianites are going to use to run down this valley and then go down the Jordan Valley to make their escape after the battle. But there's a, they're right here at this choke point, uh, encamped on either side of this Harod Valley. Here's some pictures. Uh, the first one here is... This is the Herod Valley coming up this way, and Gideon is encamped right down here. And then this is the valley, that Herod Valley. And then just on the other side, rising up here is this hill of Moray, and the Midianites are encamped just below here. Um, there are, according to chapter 8, verse 10, 135,000 Midianites in this battle. That's a pretty big group. Um, right there at the base, there's a spring uh, called the Herod Spring, and there's water there, and this is the water that Gideon and his men were camped at. And you can go there. It's little, the spring itself is kind of fenced off now, but the spring bubbles across. And here's my colleague Steve. Uh, he and I were there with a group a few years back and went through this story right at the spot where it happened, which is kind of fun to do. Uh, again, the spring. Um, and then people like to reenact the whole Gideon story, right, with the lapping and, the, and all the rest of that, right? So, and then there's a, a municipal pool that's there. You can take a refreshing swim in the waters of the spring of Herod, right? Um, in verses 2 and 3, God says 32,000. Now, mind you, there's 135,000 Midianites on the other side. They've got 
what's that? Uh, less than 25% of the forces by having 32,000. But God says that's too many. And the reason it's too many, God says in verse 2, is Israel, if they win, is going to think, ha, look what we did. We won. We're tough. And so God says, no, 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 let's get rid of that. Your own hand has saved you? No, 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 we're going to get rid of that. Whoever's afraid, go home. 22,000 people go home. Gideon has to be going, right? Yikes. And then the Lord says to Gideon in verse 4, the people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I'll test them for you. Now, the goal of the reduction is to create worshipers not warriors. The goal of the reduction of force is to create worshipers, not warriors. Do not take glory away from God. My own hand has saved me. That's taken glory away from God. We need to be careful here in American triumphalism, don't we, as, as a way of our own cultural application. Anything about how great our nation is must always be couched in humble submission to the Lord. And we're going to see in Judges chapters 8 and 9 how quickly Israel and even Gideon lose sight of this humility. Even after the Lord whittles it down to 300, which basically means it's impossible, right? And they get the victory. They're going to say, hey, look at us. Look at me. I'm somebody. It's so easy to do. There's also a larger lesson here of salvation. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. God reduces the forces here so that Israel cannot depend upon themselves. Now, God, of course, can save any way he wants. He doesn't need to reduce the forces in order to bring about the victory. But he does reduce the forces so that Israel will know who it is that saves. And so in verses 4 through 8, the remaining 10,000 are reduced down to 300. Now, the process is difficult to discern. The ESV makes it seem simple that the people that are putting their hands to their mouths is 300 and the ones that lap in the water are the rest of them. But it's a little more complicated than that in Hebrew. And the fact is that everybody debates about this and it's really hard to know exactly how the forces got reduced from 10,000, what the test was that reduces them from 10,000 to 300. But the point is not really how the force is reduced. The point is that it's reduced. We get reduced from 10,000 down to 300. And this reduction at this point does not appear to be based on fear, but on just getting the force down to an impossible few. In other words, God is reducing it down to where you can say, there's no way that they can win. 300 versus 135,000 people, there is no way that those two forces can collide and the 135,000 force lose. Can't lose. This is battle in an open field. Did you see the pictures? It's, it's not like Thermopylae where they're in this narrow thing where, you know, okay, the 300 can win, you know. No, this is out in open fields. 
It's impossible. So let's look at God's grace to reveal truth once more. At this point, you think, okay, we're going to get the battle, right? Nope, not yet. Because Gideon still needs confirmation, and God is so gracious. Gideon has had the angel of the Lord tell him the truth. He saw a miracle there. Then there were the two proofs with the, th- with the fleece. And now God is so gracious that he gives yet another confirmation. God tells Gideon, go into the Midian camp. Let me read it. That same night, the Lord said to Gideon, arise, go down against the camp, for I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream. And behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. God tells Gideon to go into the Midianite camp. Now, God knows that Gideon's afraid, so he says, If you're afraid to do that, take Purah your servant. And you'll notice that he took Purah his servant, so he was afraid. Um, And there's a description in verse 12 of this vast army arrayed against Gideon. It's 135,000 people, locusts in abundance. They're they're like locusts in abundance. The camels are like the sand on the seashore in abundance. And then he overhears what the other side is saying. That's always an important thing when you're in the military, military intelligence, you know, to get the information of what the other side is saying. And, and Gideon overhears this one guy telling his friend, I had a dream. And uh, it, it just so happened that there was this cake of barley bread that tumbles into the camp of Midian and hit a tent and struck it so that it knocked it over and turned it upside down and the tent lay flat. And his comrade says, well, I've got the interpretation for you. This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash. Somehow the other side knows Gideon's family. They know his lineage. This is the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. The camp of the enemy is confirming an Israelite victory. And look what happens in verse 15. Gideon, this mighty man of valor that we were introduced in chapter 6, remember? He's no mighty man of valor, but whatever kind of warrior he is, he's now turned into a worshiper. Look at verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, what did he do? He worshiped. And he becomes an evangelist. He returns to the camp of Israel and he speaks, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Do you see? He 
is now a worshiper and an evangelist more than he is a warrior. He knows that God is going to fight for Israel. So now let's look at God's grace, not just to reveal truth, but to bring victory. Verses 16 through 18, the battle plan is simple. Gideon divides the 300 men into three companies of 100 each, and he arms each man with a trumpet and a clay pot with essentially a candle in it. It's not a candle, it's actually a little bit of oil with a wick, right? But that's what he's got. Okay, guys, we're going to go fight 135,000 men. We're going to divide our 300 into three groups of 100, and we're going to have a trumpet and a clay pot with a candle in it. Does that sound like a winning strategy? Is it because of Gideon's great plan here that they win? And he says, follow my lead. When I blow a trumpet, you blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. By the way, prepositions are always very hard things to understand in any language. It's the hardest thing to learn when you're learning a language, how you do prepositions. And in Hebrew, it's no exception. This preposition that's used that's translated for the Lord and for Gideon could also be translated, and I think it's better to think of it this way, uh, belonging to, belonging to the Lord, belonging to Gideon. They're not thinking, we're going to go get them with this 300 guys against 135,000 for the Lord and for Gideon, let's go. No, 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 I think that they're doing it saying, we belong to the Lord and to his servant Gideon. That's who we belong to. And so the battle plan is executed. Let me read verse 16. He divided the 300 men into three companies, put trumpets into the hands of all of them, empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of this camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch where they had just set the watch and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beit Shittah toward Zerorah, as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Tabat, and the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Almanas, and they pursued after Midian. Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beit Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out. They captured the waters as far as Beit Barah and also the Jordan, and they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb on the rock at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. Then they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. So, God's grace to bring out the victory. He tells them to divide into the three companies. They get a 
trumpet and a clay pot and follow the lead. The plan is executed and Midian flees. 135,000 men fleeing 300. Now some want to explain this as excellent strategy. In fact, I've read commentators who have said that they did it at just the right time, the midnight change of guard. See that in verse 19 at the beginning of the middle watch. That's right at midnight. The deploying of the troops to negate the force of the camels. And so the way they were deployed negated the force of the camels. The plan to look like a bigger army than it was with the lights and the trumpets probably uh, indicating a, a troop size larger than just the ones holding the trumpets and the, and the, and the lights. All of that is nonsense. Absolute nonsense. There is no way, no matter what your strategy would be, in an open plain that 135,000 men can be defeated by 300. Sometime, if you ever get the chance to go to a football game where there's a, you know, I mean a really big stadium, not like Illinois, you know, somewhere big, where there's everybody there, right? Um, 100,000 fans. And I want you to figure out how many are 300. And just think about 300 against 135,000. It's impossible. It can't be done. This is ridiculous to think that Gideon had some strategy for victory. They might as well just stood out and cried uh, for the Lord and Gideon and do-si-do'd each other. It didn't matter. Look at verse 22 if you're, if you're saying, Burkle, I challenge that. I think it was by Gideon's strategy. Look at verse 22 with me. The text is clear. When they blew the 300 trumpets, who is it who does the action? The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. It is God's powerful grace that wins the day. And now the men who have been dismissed from the army are now called in to do some mop-up work. And so we'll see a, that, remember our map here where Midian was encamped up here and the uh, Gideon and his 300 were here. They meet in the middle and all these guys run back down this valley. Here's a better picture of it. The battle is right here at these blue circles and they run down to this Beit Shittah and down the Harod Valley, down to the Jordan Valley, and then they're trying to escape out to the desert, okay? That's what they're trying to do. Um, oops, let me back up. And so in that strategy, Gideon calls out all the other guys. Verse 23 Men of Israel were called out from, and these are various tribes of Israel, Naphtali, Asher, all Manasseh. They pursued after Midian. And then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim. Those are the Ephraimites. Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters. And so they're, they're on this chase to try to get them before they get away. Okay? 
And that's kind of the mop-up work. And I want you to notice that there's a really elegant conclusion to this narrative. At the beginning of the narrative, we're introduced to Gideon, and he is in a wine press threshing grain, right? He's in a wine press. And then he meets the angel of the Lord at a rock. Okay, do you catch that? He starts out at a wine press, and he meets the Lord at a rock. Look at how it ends. They killed Zeb at the rock, or they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. The two princes of Midian are killed at a rock and a winepress. Winepress, rock, rock, winepress. God's powerful grace wins the victory. Now, you might say, well, yeah, God's powerful grace is wonderful to create worshipers in the Old Testament thousands of years ago, but where does that, what does that do for the church today? The same principle is at work today, brothers and sisters. If the church is going to have an impact on culture we must recognize that it is not by our stratagems, not by our plans, not by our numbers that we will win any kind of victory at all. It is only God winning his victories by his powerful grace. And the Apostle Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He reduced Gideon's forces, why? So that no one could boast that they had won the victory. For the church, it's the same thing. God has given us much weakness, much uh, less power. We're, we're not that wise. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boast, boast in the Lord. That's where the church should be. Now, you might ask the further question, well, where does that take me as an individual? Because I face challenges that are way bigger than me. Where's God's powerful grace for me? I'm so glad you're asking that question because God's powerful grace is for you to save you and to equip you to create you as a worshiper. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in his own personal life in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. 
But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Some of you are dealing with things that are so great you don't even know where to turn. God's powerful grace is at work whether you know it or not. If you're a believer in Jesus, God's powerful grace is at work in your life. You might say, but I've messed up. I've messed up beyond all hope. Gideon messed up beyond all hope. He kept making error after error after error. And yet what happened? God's powerful grace came upon him. Dear ones, whether it's for the church as a whole and our mission, or for each one of our individual lives as we face the challenges that this sin-cursed world brings us, there is one thing that is true and undeniable, God's powerful grace. God alone saves. He saves by powerful grace to create worshipers. Father in heaven, we ask that you would do a work in each individual life here where they're feeling like they're way outnumbered, like 135,000 to 300, where they feel like the problems that they're facing are way bigger than they can handle. Would you pour out your powerful grace in their lives? Create worshipers of these dear ones who are hurting so. Create worshipers, Lord. God, we pray for your church, for East White Oak Bible Church, that we would not take some kind of satisfaction in the work of our hands or of our plans or of past or future successes, but that we would instead lean on you and call on your powerful grace to win the day so that we may be testaments of your grace as worshipers to a hurting and watching world that they may see that Jesus Christ is powerful. Now, Lord, I pray that, that, there, that if there's anyone in the sound of my voice who has never put their faith and hope in Christ, that they would recognize the powerlessness of their situation that they cannot save themselves, but that you affected a salvation by your powerful grace in sending Jesus to live a perfect life, to die on a cross as a payment for our sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day in triumph and he is and will be the King of kings and Lord of lords forever. And I pray that whoever has not made that decision to say, I am going to trust Jesus, to forgive me of my sin by what he did at the cross, that they'd do it right now. That they'd say, Lord Jesus, I turn from my sin. 
I'm tired of trying to fight. I'm tired of trying to win battles on my own. I'm tired of thinking about myself all the time, of boasting in what I have and do. I'm tired of thinking about myself and measuring myself against others. I want to surrender my life to you, and I want you to take control. And Lord, in the process, please give to me the eternal life that you have promised. Lord Jesus, we now ask that you would hold us fast in your strong hands, that your powerful grace would create worshipers out of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.